Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8 this morning. I'd like to read this for us as we begin. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, today we're coming to a passage that is sometimes difficult to talk about because of the wide range of ages that we have in a worship service, because of the delicate nature of the subject, and yet it is a word that we need to hear. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide me in what I say this morning, that it would be true and helpful. And I pray for all who are here today and who will hear this message, that you would use this word from you to encourage, to build conviction, to bring confession and help us to grow in our relationship with you. Father, we want to live as your people in a way that pleases God. Amen. One of the things that Gail and I like to do when the weather turns cooler is to have a fire in the fireplace. We've been blessed to have a fireplace in our home for many years, and we've enjoyed a good supply of wood and be able to enjoy a warm fire on a cool night. There's something cozy about sitting around a fire, whether you're watching a good movie or just enjoying a cup of hot chocolate or maybe tea or something like that as you're having good conversation. It is beautiful. It is warm. It is a delight. But if you take that same fire out of the fireplace, it can be devastating. We've all seen the pictures of what happens when there's an apartment fire or a home is set ablaze and in a matter of minutes it can be destroyed. Fire can destroy property and it can also destroy lives. And the subject that we're going to talk about today is a lot like fire. We're going to talk about God's will for us in the area of sexual purity. And when sex is kept within the bounds that God intends, within the bounds of marriage, it is safe, it is beautiful, and it is good. But when sex has no boundaries or people adopt an attitude of anything goes, the results are devastating and the consequences are severe. This is an important message for us to hear because of the world that we live in and how it affects each of us. And I would especially ask our teenagers or young adults who are still uh, kind of forming values and convictions in this area to pay close attention. We live in a world that seems to be obsessed with sex. 
We see it in advertising. We see it in movies, television shows. It's kind of pushed out there in your face, used to sell things, used to uh, share the world's values. It's even sadly come up in our presidential debates where they are talking about the issues of appropriate conduct between men and women. We have people in our world who flaunt their sexuality in the way that they dress and in the way that they act. And they adopt sort of an in-your-face attitude where all modesty is gone. So how do we decide what's right and what is wrong when it comes to sexual matters? If we were to listen to the world, we would find that it gives some pretty mixed messages. There's no common standard anymore about how someone should dress or about behavior or actions in this area. On the one side, we have had people who have been rightly appalled by what Donald Trump said in the videos that were released. I mean, that was disgusting. It is demeaning. It is appalling what was said. Yet at the same time, we live in a world that often glorifies or makes celebrities out of people who do that kind of shock talk. Whether it is a comedian like Samantha Bee or whether it's a radio host like Howard Stern or whether it is music, uh, rap artists or R&B music that have lyrics that objectify women and that are crude and vulgar, if we're going to be consistent across the board, we need to say that all of that is offensive. And there's really no place for that in our public culture. For the believer, the place where we start informing our values is here with the Word of God. This is our guide. And if we are going to live in a way that pleases God, and there are three things that we must do that Paul shares here with the Thessalonians. Number one, we must avoid sexual immorality. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul is going to address five topics under the heading of living to please the Lord. And we get the impression from this text that when he came to the church and these new believers were meeting, that he gave instructions. This is how we are to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And Timothy had been sent to, to see how they were doing. He comes back, and it seems like Timothy has said they're doing well. On the whole, they are growing in faith and in love, but there are some areas where they need further instruction. And so these five topics are what Paul is going to address in his letter here. Those five topics are holiness, and specifically this area of sexual immorality. He's going to talk about love in verses 9 to 12. He's going to answer the question, what happens when we die? Some of the believers were wondering about that. What happens when a believer dies? And we talk about this as, you know, they, they've fallen asleep as a euphemism for death. What happens then? He's going to talk about dates and times. They had questions about the coming of the Lord. When will this be? How will we know the Lord is going to return? And so Paul will answer and give clarity there. And then in the last section, verses 12 through the end of this letter, he talks about some congregational matters. 
some different items that you could put under a miscellaneous heading of further instructions that they needed. And you can see where we're going to be headed in the next month as we cover these different topics. So Paul begins this discussion of holiness with this statement in verse 3, that it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should be holy. And holiness is a broad subject. It encompasses many different areas. It encompasses the way that we speak to one another. It it encompasses our thoughts, that our thought life is to be holy and pleasing to the Lord. And it also includes our actions. It addresses our character, that we are to be people of integrity, humility, generosity, kindness, and loving toward one another. And all of that is under this framework of being holy as God himself is holy. Sanctification, then, is the process where God makes us more and more like Jesus, and it will take our lifetime. It never ends. It continues on that, until that day when we will stand before the Lord and be fully glorified. But in this life, we are to be growing in holiness. And we're going to have struggles, and we're going to have challenges, and we're going to have areas of our life that may seem more stubborn than others. Some areas we seem to do well and grow very quickly, and other areas may be more difficult for us. And those areas can be different in each of our lives. But God has called us to be holy. And in this particular subject that he's talking about, he says if we are to be holy, then we must avoid sexual immorality. Now, the word in Greek there that is used for sexual immorality is the word porneia. It's a broad word, and that word encompasses all kinds of sexual sin. And they would have understood that. I mean, this broad word would include uh, premarital sex, sex before you are married, and includes extramarital sex. It forbids adultery. It forbids prostitution, pornography, homosexual sex, and all other sexual sins. And there could be a long list of things that we would include in that. And I want you to see how strongly Paul puts this. In verse 1, he says, this is how we must live if we are to please the Lord. What's interesting is that in Greek, there's actually another word there, day, that strengthens this instruction that this is how we must live as Christians in this world. He tells us that these instructions come from the Lord Jesus. They are by his authority. He tells us in verse 3, this is God's will for all of us. And he's going to end this section in verse 8 when he says that to reject these instructions would be to reject God himself. For God has given us these instructions. So why is Paul so strong on this? Why is the Scripture so strong in this statement? It is because it is a very serious matter and God cares deeply about you. God loves us. And He wants us to live in a way that is holy and pleasing to Him, but also in a way that is best for us. The world in which Paul lived was in some areas not too different from our own. But in other areas, when we read about it, it was even worse. 
The Greek and Roman world didn't think of their sexual behavior as sin. I mean, they accepted it as a normal part of life, and they really had kind of a laissez-faire attitude that anything goes here, and I think there are people in our world today who are just like that, that would say, don't tell me what I can or can't do. You know, I want to do whatever I want. I want to express my sexuality however I want to express it. That's my right. That's who I am. And there were people who would totally ignore what God has to say in this area. James Grant said that this created an environment in the Greco-Roman world where most people didn't expect husbands to be committed to their marriages. Sexual misconduct and adultery were widespread. Prostitution was a business just like any other source of income. Innkeepers kept slave girls for the sexual entertainment of their customers. Adulterous activity was so widespread that Emperor August established codes to reform marital conduct. Living several centuries before Paul's time, a man named Demosthenes explained the situation in this way. Mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. They had a double standard. You know, men could do whatever they wanted. Wives, though, were to be faithful in marriage because you wanted to make sure that that child that was being born was your child. And so they had this inconsistent double standard. What made it worse in many of the cities in the Greek and Roman world was also temple prostitution. That as a part of worship at these pagan temples, there were prostitutes there. And that occurred in Thessalonica. They had a cult called Kabiri of Samothrace, and they sanctioned sexual relationships that would have been considered sinful for the Christians. And you can imagine this world where you have people that are being converted out of this very pagan, sexual, immoral culture, and Paul is calling them to live differently. And he's saying, I know this is not going to be easy for some of you. I know that this message is counter-cultural. But this is God's will for our life as followers of Christ. And it is for our good. Now I want us to think about that. God gives us these instructions for our good. And take another area of life where we do this as well and where you might say that freedoms are restricted or freedoms are to be held within certain boundaries. We do that in the area of driving. Many of you have had kids who have grown up and you've gone through those years when they were doing the driver's training instruction and with fear and trembling you may have turned over the keys of your car to them to go for that first drive on their own after they got their license. And I think about that time. I mean, we had three sons who learned to drive, and we wanted to make sure that they would do that well. So, you know, you follow the rules, and you have them go to driver's instruction and take the the behind-the-wheel training, and you log in those hours with them that they drive so many hours during the day and at night. And I wanted to give them every opportunity that I could for them to drive when we were with them in the car because I wanted them to learn to do this well. 
We even uh, had a contract that we drew up with them and went over before they got the privilege of driving. We talked about things like no texting and driving, something that should be obvious but isn't always. We talked about no speeding. We talked about the number of kids that could be in the car with you because we don't want you to be distracted by other kids. We talked about calling if you were going to be late. We wanted to know, you know, where you were going to go and when you were going to be home. And so we had all these parameters. And we didn't do that because we wanted to be mean or we wanted to restrict their freedom. We did it because we wanted them to be safe and to do this well. Driving is a great responsibility. And it's not only your life that's at stake, but it's everybody who's in that car and it's all those other vehicles that you're going to meet. And on top of all that, we prayed. And I remember praying many, many times, God, don't let their mistakes be fatal. Because I know that there are times when our kids driving in that process of learning are going to make some mistakes. And I just prayed, God, don't let it be fatal. You know, it's the same thing with God. He has given us this beautiful gift, human sexuality and the joy of intimacy with a husband and wife is a beautiful thing. But when that is taken outside of the bounds of marriage, it is destructive. And what if there was a way to avoid all sexually transmitted diseases that have devastated so many lives? What if there was a way that all children could be born in a home to a mom and a dad? What if there was a way to enjoy the blessing and the joy of God on our life and on our relationships? To literally be holy and happy with no shame or regrets? There he is if we will follow God's will for our life. And so Paul goes on to say, not only do we need to avoid this area, but we need to control our own body in a way that is holy and honorable. It is a choice that we each must make. And I knew, for example, in that area of driving a car, when I gave the keys to our sons, I wasn't going to be there all the time to watch what they were doing. It would be up to them to make good choices, good decisions, to make sure that their driving was appropriate when they got behind the wheel. And in that same way, God has given us freedom in this area to make choices about our conduct. But what Paul is saying for us as believers, our conduct is to be holy, and holy means that it is pleasing to God. Honorable means that it is respectful of others. It's not all about me. It's not all about my desires or my pleasures. It is to be holy and honorable to all. And that calls for self-control. And self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. As he comes into our life, God gives us the power to do what he commands. It is there. It's available for us if we will draw upon it. But once again, we must do our part to cooperate with God in this process. And the opposite side of that would be to do what Paul tells us not to do. 
He tells us not to give in to our passion and let them control us. He said that's the way the world lives, in passionate lust, where they just follow their appetites or desires because they do not know God. I want you to notice something else here. Paul's focus is on the believer. Paul's focus and his concern is for the church. You know, he's not asking them to stage a boycott at the local temple in Thessalonica. He's not asking them at this point to change the behavior of the world around them. He's saying, no, my concern is for you as a follower of Christ. We are called to live in a way that pleases God. And if we will do that, God will use us to be a fragrant influence in our world. And people will see something different. And that's why I think today in our world that a marriage that is healthy and strong and growing is such a powerful witness. And sometimes the world goes, how did you do that? How did you resist temptation? How did you grow in those years together as a couple? What is it? that you would say is the reason why you have had the happy marriage that you've had. And to be able to say that it is by the grace of God or it's because what Christ has done in our life is a powerful witness. How do we live in a way that pleases God? Well, it starts with our mind. Our thought life has to be pure and pleasing to God. For example... There are two ways to try and keep a pot from boiling over on a stove. One way is to use a heavy lid and to press that down, and as that pot is boiling, you try to keep that pressure on, but that's not very successful, is it? It just postpones the inevitable explosion, if you will, that if that heat remains and that pot is boiling, eventually it's going to build up enough pressure and it's going to overflow. The other way to deal with a pot that's about ready to boil over is to cut the heat or move it off of the burner. To remove that source that is causing that pot to boil. And in that same way, we need to guard what we put into our mind. Job, one of the oldest books in the Old Testament, said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And at, I think it needs to be said in our day and age that when he's talking about a girl there, he wasn't, he wasn't just talking about children. He was talking about a woman. He was just expressing it in a way that was said at that time that I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at another woman. If you struggle in this area with pornography online, and sadly it has become so accessible and so hidden and secret that many do, both men and women, there is a program called Covenant Eyes. It's a Christian ministry, and it acts, if you want to put that on your computer, it acts as a filter to keep you from going to certain sites, and it acts as an accountability tool that will track what you're seeing. And it can send it to a friend or an accountability partner to help you in that area to control something that you don't want to do. 
If you're struggling with temptation in other areas, whether it's books or magazines or music or television or movies, turn it off. Change your habits. Cut the source of the heat and tell someone. James 5 calls us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we may be healed. There is something about just bringing that out into the open that is healing and that admits it. I mean, Satan loves us to keep things secret where he can kind of beat up on us and he can continue to provoke contempt in certain areas of our life. And then thirdly, we need to feed our new nature. I mean, we can't just operate in a vacuum. We need to focus on those things that are really good. And that's where I love Philippians 4.8 that says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The only way that you can overcome a wrong addiction or affection is by replacing it with something that is a healthy and good affection. And so God says, focus upon these things. And once again, I I didn't put this down on this list, but another strong teaching in Scripture is how a healthy marriage is an antidote to sin. A healthy relationship between a husband and a wife is one of the ways that God has given us to deal with temptation in this area. And then thirdly, Paul goes on to say in verses 6 to 8, do not wrong your brother or sister. Sexual immorality doesn't just hurt you, it hurts others also. One of the lies that people say sometimes in our world to argue against any restrictions in this area is that well, it ought to be open to do whatever, whatever I want to do, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. Or as long as two people consent, what business is it if anybody else says that this is right or wrong? Well, the problem is it doesn't just hurt you, and it's not just private between two people. Premarital sex steals someone's innocence, someone's virginity. Don't you realize if you are young and dating, that that person you are dating, if you're not going to marry them, someday will be someone else's husband or wife. Treat them in the way that you would want someone to be treating your future husband or wife. Adultery hurts your husband or wife. It hurts your children. And very often it tears apart another family as well. And I have seen that. I have confronted people. And I've confronted those who have been caught in this uh, immoral relationship, who have tried to excuse their behavior, deny their behavior, and instead of repenting, have gone on and destroyed other marriages and relationships. It's sad. It doesn't have to be that way. But unless there is repentance and a turning and admission of sin and turning from it, it will continue. Pornography and prostitution are not victimless crimes. They destroy 
lives. Recently, there was this sting operation down in the Twin Cities where several arrests were made of this ring of sex trafficking that's going on in our area, in our cities as well, where women from Thailand were being told that uh, they could come to America and they'd put them up and they'd get them jobs and all this kind of stuff, and they became sexual slaves. It was horrible. But as a part of that story, one of the things that was shared on the news is that in the Twin Cities, at a certain website, there are 35,000 ads for prostitution. I'm going, did I hear that right? I said together, did I hear that, that number right? 35,000 ads that are out there for prostitution in this area where we live. In the United States, Americans spend $13 billion on pornography every year. That's over $3,000 every second of the day. When you look at the area of abuse and you look at the sexual crimes, rape or incest or sexual abuse that have hurt and destroyed so many, the statistics say that one out of three women have been abused. And I look around and I think, you know, one out of three, some of you here have been victims of abuse in this area. They say for men, it's one out of four men. And again, you look and you think, one out of four men. What is going on in our world? We are broken. And we need God's grace. We need his healing to help us in this area. Sexual sin hurts our relationship with God and our witness to the world. And the scripture says the Lord will punish all such sins. The way the Greek reads, it says the Lord is the avenger of all such things. And it picks up on this Old Testament idea. In the Old Testament, you read how God cares for the widow. He cares for the orphan. He cares for the alien. He cares for those who have no one as their advocate or defender in this world. And what God is saying here, for everyone who has ever been a victim of abuse or sexual sin in some way, God is the avenger of that. And we don't always see that in this world, do we? But in that day, when everyone will stand before the Lord, God will be the one who brings justice. God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. And what we see in this passage again is how sex within the bounds of marriage is holy and good, and that message needs to be said too. It is one of God's great gifts, and if we were in another passage, I would talk more about marriage and the relationship and how important that is, that we love one another. But this text is talking about sexual immorality. And it affirms how sex outside of the bounds of marriage is destructive. It hurts our relationship with God, with others, and even with ourselves. So what do we do? We strive to be holy. We make that our aim, that we live our lives wanting to please the Lord in all areas. That is our conviction, and it can be done. 
I love the passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul talked about the church there and he said, you know, some of you were sexually immoral. Some of you were prostitutes. Some of you were homosexual offenders. Some of you were thieves and swindlers and idolaters, but you were washed. You were cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and you now live differently. Praise God. And if you stumble and sin in this area, what do you do? You confess it to God, you ask for His forgiveness, and you get up and you continue in the fight. And if you struggle in such a way that you are feeling like, boy, I I need help in overcoming this, then you seek counsel. Or you find an accountability partner. You keep growing. You draw on His power. And you fight this good fight of faith so that one day you will stand before the Lord having done everything that you could to stand you know we really do need help in this area and there are a lot of different ministries that are helped there are uh, small groups that help people in the area of sexual addiction as well as alcoholism or other addictions if you want to find out more information about that you can come and talk to me If you need prayer, you can talk to us as pastors. You can share it in an appropriate way with a small group. Maybe you have a prayer partner and you can say, hey, I'm struggling in this area. And would you pray for me? Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. Let's pray. Father, today's passage, I know, is a strong word, but it needs to be said. And I thank you for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness that cleanses us from all our sins. And I pray, Father, for each one who's here. You know where we are in our relationship with you. You know the struggles we have. And God, I pray for victory. That we would walk in freedom. That we would walk in joy and in holiness with you. Making it our aim to please you in all areas. Father, would you grant that grace and power that each one of us needs. In Jesus' name, amen.